The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in 1 John. For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Prior to joining staff here at Stone Oak Bible, I served as a pastor of youth and young adults at a church in Connecticut. And I absolutely loved that job and missed a lot of aspects of that job. And one of the things that really, really excited me about that position was having the opportunity to go on different trips and retreats with students. And I would love it because we'd get away and allow the students to kind of unplug from the world and connect with each other and connect with God. And it was just a really fun time and something that I really enjoyed. And a few years back, I had the opportunity to take 40 teenagers to a conference um, that the EFCA, which Stone Up I was a member of, um, in New Orleans. And if you've ever been to New Orleans, you would understand why my anxiety was a little bit high of being in charge of 40 teenagers in New Orleans. It's a city with a whole lot of culture. It's a great city with a, a lot of culture, but some culture that you certainly don't want teenagers to get wrapped up in. And, and so um, we were very structured about our approach to the trip and had some fun activities. We went on a boat trip of the Mississippi River. And and um, then we we got the conference kicked off on Sunday night. And I was sitting down there with one of the leaders in the lobby of our hotel, which was a 3,000-person hotel. And uh, I said to him, I said, man, this has just been so great. Everybody's doing so well. We're having a great start to the conference. And, and literally, some kid just came running at me, and he had a piece of paper in his hand. And he said, Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, my room has bed bugs. And I said, what? And he goes, my room has bed bugs. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, look. And he showed me this piece of paper, and it said, I'm the letterhead of the hotel. And we regret to inform you, but we've experienced a bed bug infestation. And we're so sorry about the inconvenience that it may cause, but if you encounter these bugs, we encourage you to sing them lullabies, throw things at them, spray powder on them, or jump up and down on top of their heads. And I, I, re- I started to read that, and I was like, man, this is a joke. And before I could even tell him, hey, dude, you totally got hosed. This is obviously a prank. He, uh, I looked up, and out of the corner of my eye, I, found th- I saw three kids from our group at the front desk and they were showing the hotel this letter and the hotel totally freaked out and we're like this is not our real letterhead and and so I ran over there and I said you know this was a mistake this was obviously a prank on some kids from our group and and a total you know so sorry about this and I apologize well they didn't think it was funny and the next day I had a meeting with the general manager of the hotel with the manager and the director of the conference and we we talked about this and they were ready to pursue legal action and a potential lawsuit for defamation because we were grossly misrepresenting their hotel. Defamation is defined as poorly misrepresenting someone or something and saying someone about some someone or something that isn't true. And so this letter that claimed the letterhead of the, of the hotel conveyed a message that wasn't from the hotel and wasn't an accurate representation of them. And so they were really upset. And thankfully, uh, they were extremely gracious about the whole thing. They understood that it was just some kids trying to have fun, not really thinking, and and uh, they dismissed it and didn't pursue any legal action, um, which I was really grateful for. And then later, later that night, I was just thinking about it. And as I put my head on the pillow to go to sleep, I just thought about defamation and what that means and misrepresenting someone or something. And it was almost as if I felt 
the voice of God kind of come over me to just say, Michael, do not commit defamation against me. Do not misrepresent me. Michael, you claim to be a follower of Jesus. You claim to, to love me and to love God and make sure that your life reflects that. Make sure that your life accurately represents me. And as we've been going through the book of 1 John and are now in 1 John chapter 2, John talks about this and he says, look, the content of your life and the way that you live your life matters because if you claim to be a lover of God and that you have the love of God in you, it's going to be reflected in the way that you live. And John tells us this morning that we're going to see that you cannot love both God and the world. You cannot love both God and the world. Paul encourages the same thing in 2 Corinthians. He says, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Because people who have been transformed by the gospel will demonstrate the gospel. A few weeks ago, Justin talked about being able to be sure that we've experienced salvation and to know that we know Jesus. And in this text, John picks up on a similar theme. And he tells us that those of us who follow Jesus will not love the world. So we're going to be reading in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, this is a passage that we're going to be exploring that's so important that we look at it in its proper context. And we've talked about that a lot as a church, making sure that we read things for what they truly say. And this passage has been grossly misrepresented and, and this passage has been taken out of context and taken to extremes and used to denounce everything from bumper stickers to beer from to opera to operations and everything in between and people misuse and abuse this passage and so we're going to jump into it and try to accurately understand what it is that John's getting at and as we jump in we got to figure out what does he mean by do not love the world you know, this is something that could be confusing because in other portions of John's writings, he said, you know, God so loves the world. And here he says, don't love the world. So what does he mean? Well, he's not referring to creation found in Genesis chapter 1 about uh, loving what God has created. He's not talking about loving mankind because as we just said in John 3.16, God so loves the world and ended up giving his life for, for mankind. And so what is he talking about? And we, we're going to see that John's talking about the world of sin and the world of evil that's governed by Satan and that is in opposition to the things of God. The world that's governed by Satan in opposition to the things of God. And when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples shortly before his death, he talked about this too. He said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a philosophy and a way the world operates that's fueled and driven by evil that is in competition for our attention, our affection, and our devotion. This is the world that robs God of the glory that is rightfully his. And this is the world that Jesus spoke against wherever he went. And this is the world that hated Jesus and crucified him. This is the world that 
John's talking about. And the word love, when it talks about loving the world, refers to our affections and our devotion. What you're devoted to and what you're committed to and what you seek satisfaction in. The main point that John makes that the, is that the follower of Jesus must understand that there is incredible competition for the human heart. There is incredible competition for the human heart. That's why, you know, oftentimes in the church, you ever heard the, the term spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare? That's because this is really, really real. There's a battle being waged over souls. And we must take it very seriously. There are things that are constantly competing for us, constantly seeking our affections and our devotion. Some things are even good things that we elevate to make the ultimate thing. And John says, look, there's two ways. There's the ways of God and there's the ways of the world. And you cannot love both. The ways of the God, the ways of God, the ways of the world. And you cannot love both. If you claim to love God and hey, I'm a lover of Jesus and I'm a follower of him and the love of God is in me. And what that means is that you will not love the world. This is so important and vital for each of us to wrestle with, not only because of how we live as disciples, but also the message that it sends to the world about Jesus. The late Christian author and writer Brennan Manning said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. John says you cannot, you cannot love both God and the world. And that's our first point this morning. You cannot love both God and the world. You and I were created in the image of God, made to bring him glory, made to worship him with our lives. And he is to be the object of our affection and our devotion. But when sin entered into the world and tainted this perfect creation that God had made, it began we began as um, to take what we should direct towards God and place it on other things. And we were, we were to take our worship that was to be directed towards God and we place it on other things. And this is called idolatry. And, and so God wants us to bring him glory and to worship him. And he calls us to be set apart. Another word that is used for that that we oftentimes use is holy. And God says, be holy for I am holy. And he wants us to be set apart for him. And this isn't only just to be set apart to God, but also set apart from the world, that we are separated from the world and from the ways of the world and the ways that the world operates. Jesus says in John 17 that we're in the world, but not of the world. So how do we navigate through this world that we live in? And how does a Christian live in the world, but not love the world? And there's tension here that all of us wrestle with. And there's different approaches that people take to being a Christian in the world. And so I'm going to give you quickly the profile of three different people that purposely pick names of people that didn't go to Stone Oak Bible Church um, that, that really kind of reflect the way that people approach the world in the church. The first one we'll call Lenny the Legalist. And for Lenny, he's a good Jesus follower. He's never been late to church. He's never missed a tithe check. He doesn't watch movies with any curse words in them, and he doesn't go over the speed limit when he drives, even though it makes others crazy because it's the law. And he has his, and his friends have a saying that we don't drink and we don't chew and we won't be with those who do. 
Lenny's a good follower of Jesus because he's always on his best behavior and always willing to do the right thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking these things that Lenny does. These can all be very good things, but the motivation behind his behavior is what's flawed. The dictionary defines legalism as strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious moral code. And in his book, The Rest of God, Mark Buchanan writes that legalism is the reduction of life to mere technicalities. It substitutes code for conscience, ritual for worship, rectitude for holiness, and morality for purity. Jesus confronted this attitude of legalism, and he spoke out harshly against it. There were many people in his day that believed that they were in good standing with God because of the way that they lived and because of their behavior, and they took great pride in what they would do, and they would follow the law to a T because they were the high and mighty self-righteous people. And Jesus spoke out against them because he said, look, you, you, may be, you may appear to be following God, but your hearts are far from God. And legalism is this set of rules and belief in a system that, that makes us think that somehow, some way, by our behavior and our conduct, that we are in right standing before God. We've, it's, Christianity is reduced to a list of do's and don'ts, and like Lenny, it's become nothing more than a set of moral codes or behavior modification. The second person we'll meet today when it comes to how followers of Jesus live in the world is Patty the Paranoid. Patty knows a lot, or that there's a lot of evil in the world. And she and her husband, Phil, bought a house out in the hill country on a large property so they don't have to um, be around the world and they can be as far away from evil as possible. They don't have any TVs in their homes. They homeschool their children for no other reason than they don't want them to talk to sinners. And they only go out to church and then to the grocery store, although the kids stay in the car with Phil because she does not want them to see anything that might pique their curiosity. Her relationship with the world and how they relate to the world as a family is ultimately driven by fear. People like this have been around for many centuries. In fact, at one point, the response of the church was to build monasteries um, where they, these monks would go and they would live there to be isolated from the world so that they would not be tainted by what happened in the world. And they would withdraw from the world. And there was literally a man in the early 4th century by the name of Simon the Stylite. And he had a 60-foot a pillar built with a platform on top. And he lived there, no joke, for 36 years. For 36 years. And people would gather and they would come. And they, they would look up and they would listen to this unworldly man and his teaching. And that's what it meant for him to not be in the world and to not love the world. The third and final person that we meet today when it comes to how do we relate to the world we'll call good time Gary. Gary understands he's a sinner. He knows that Jesus saves him and it's a gospel of grace. And Gary knows he can't do anything to earn right standing with God and that Jesus died for his sins. And so for Gary, he knows that God's going to forgive him no matter what he does. And so it doesn't really matter and he can do what he wants. He's a savvy young businessman, and he's climbed up the corporate ladder, even though he's kind of embellished his resume a little bit here and there. I had to tell a few white lies and even slander a few people along the way. Um, but you'll see Gary at church on Sundays uh, most often. That is, if he's recovered from his hard partying on Friday and Saturday nights. 
Because after all, Jesus is going to forgive him no matter what he does. So why does it really matter as long as he's happy? And there's different approaches to how we as the church and as Christians view the world. There's this legalism where we reduce Christianity to a set of do's and don'ts. There's this hedonism where we indulge ourselves and kind of do what we want because, hey, we're going to be forgiven. And then there's almost this paranoia, which is driven by fear of the world. But I want to make sure that we're very clear today about this, that loving the world at its core, this is a heart issue. This is a matter of the heart. If your heart is captured by the world, you will love the world and pursue the things of the world. But if your heart is captured by God, you will be drawn to him and do the things of God. And John fleshes this out and explains what it means a little bit more. And he commands his followers, listen, do not, do not give into the ways of the world that leads to death. And then he expounds on what, what he means and what he's getting at and breaks it into three categories of how we give in to the world that leads to death. And the first thing he says to avoid is the desires of the flesh. This is a reference to our capacity and tendency to sin and to pursue bodily pleasures. Things that our flesh craves to pursue ultimate satisfaction and gratification. And there's certain things that God's given us that are even good and very, very good things and proper. But there's, uh, and there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. But our flesh, with this potential and strong desires, seeks to take these good things and we use them to extremes. For example, food is a good thing. We need food. And our bodies are made to have to have food. But some people... They live to eat rather than eat to live. And there's many ways that food is abused, which leads to gluttony, indulgence, and excess, or can even lead to image issues and abuse on the other end of the spectrum. Appearance. God's given us our bodies that are fearfully and wonderfully made, designed by Him. But some of us have a tendency to become so preoccupied with our bodies that we value our appearance so much and we become consumed with vanity and, and beauty, and we long for it so much that we're more concerned with how we look on the outside rather than what's going on on the inside. Another thing that's oftentimes abused in our culture is sex. And sex is a great thing that God created to be enjoyed between a man and his wife inside the context of marriage. But it's taken on different forms and has been twisted and perverted in a way that's evil. Any sexual relations outside of the context of marriage is worldly and in opposition to God. And there are many other sexual sins that attempt to entice us and lure us in. And I so appreciated that Justin talked about pornography, you know, several months ago and talked about the, the truth that there's just as many people in the church statistically that look at pornography than outside of the church. And John says, look, there's things that lure you, that promise satisfaction, that, that are the desires of the flesh that you need to say no to and that you need to realize they're promising you satisfaction and fulfillment that only Jesus can give. So John talks about pursuing bodily pleasures and then he shifts to tell us, to be mindful of the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes refers to aesthetic and intellectual pleasures. Things that you can see and things that you <coughs> things that you want and that you pursue that promise satisfaction and fulfillment. In John's day, the Greeks and Romans, they lived for entertainment and they participated in acts and they pursued things that excited the eyes. And when you think about it, times have not changed that much at all. 
And there's a way of thinking that we are constantly exposed to that tells us that there's nothing better, nothing higher, and nothing more satisfying than we can get in this life and to pursue this instant gratification. And this thinking leads us to pursue money, pleasures, power, and fame. And especially with media the way that it is today, we're constantly bombarded with these messages that promise satisfaction where we see people that say, hey, you're not going to be happy until you buy this product or until you adopt this kind of lifestyle. Or we thumb through magazines and scroll through websites on the internet that lure us with beautiful homes, newer cars, luxury items, or expensive vacations if we can somehow get enough money or go into enough debt to attain them. And it's a desire for the things of the world that prompts Americans to spend billions and billions of dollars every year at casinos because they believe if they can just get one hit on a slot machine or if the chips fall their way that they can be happy. So we're stuck in a culture that totally buys this if-only lie. Seriously, think about it. This week, I, I venture to guess that you did it. And, and, and I know I did it as well, that we buy into this if-only lie. If only I could get a promotion at work, then I would be happy. If only I had more and a, a better, reliable, more reliable vehicle and a better vehicle, then I would be happy. If only I got a better tax return and, and had more money, then we could go on this vacation that we want to go on. Or then we could buy the furniture that we want and then we'd be happy. There are things that are all around us that promise satisfaction and fulfillment. And if we're not careful, we can be lured into these things. Last week, our children's ministry talked about the story of Achan. And they, they learned that my little girls learned it. And they came home, we're talking all about Achan. And Achan, the story is found in Joshua chapter 7. And uh, he was a soldier at Israel's army. And uh, they were going to take over the promised land that, that God had, had promised to the nation of Israel. And so they had these different battles with these other nations over this land. And God told the soldiers, do not take any of the spoils of war, any of the plunder for yourselves. Um, so Achan's there and they go through this battle and, and uh, he ends up seeing all of this beautiful, all these beautiful things. And he gets enticed and this is what he says. So when I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. In other words, Achan says, I saw something that enticed me. And even though I knew what I should be doing, and even though I knew I shouldn't take it, I did it because I couldn't resist it. Because of Achan's sin, it ultimately led to Israel being defeated in that battle and, and uh, it led to the death of Achan and his family and to their destruction. And it is the same desires of the eyes that led Eve to disobey God and eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree in the garden. We all have a propensity to be pulled by the forces of sin and evil. Sin and evil that always overpromises and always underdelivers sin that always overpromises and always underdelivers the world promises satisfaction and gratification but ultimately leaves us empty searching and wanting and as john says it leads to death just like it did for eve and for aiken what about you what are you seeking satisfaction and what are you led to believe that will leave you satisfied what are you pursuing 
What if only promises are you buying into? There's a hymn that we oftentimes sing in the church called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in the song that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And man, every time I sing that song, I just am so convicted about how true that is. That I can feel myself. I can feel the forces all around us. And, and sometimes I feel myself longing after things and being straight away. And that there is this competition that's trying to pull away my satisfaction and my devotion. And John says, look, avoid the lust of the flesh. Avoid the lust of the eyes. And lastly, he says, do not give in to the pride of life. And the word life does not refer to the state of being alive, but rather to the things in the world that make up our lives. Elsewhere, this same word is translated goods. So the phrase pride of life means pride in what you possess or the things that you have or the circumstances that you're in. The Greek word for pride is, is a braggart who tries to impress people with his importance. Someone who's constantly trying to bring themselves honor, even at the expense of others. We have a tendency to elevate ourselves, to want to promote ourselves, and to take pride in what we have. This is all around us, everywhere. People trying to work their way up the corporate ladder to try to prove how great they are. People always trying to one-up each other for their own gain. People striving after bigger houses, nicer cars, more success, just so others will think highly of them. And it's amazing the lengths that we go to and, and many people go to just to make an impression. The pride of life, it does great damage in the area of our personal relationships. And, and so many people, even in families, are so prideful and it ends up destroying them. It creates a, a, a sense of selfishness and jealousy and envy because you're constantly trying to work hard to be better than other people. Being prideful in your possessions and taking on a worldly perspective, though, has nothing to do with your circumstances or what you have. It has nothing to do with the circumstances that you're in or what you have, but it has everything to do with your heart. A poor man who does not have many possessions may be very worldly because he desires these things as a key to happiness. But a wealthy man may not be worldly in that he uses his possessions to be a steward of God and as a means of promoting God's purpose and glory. So to be worldly is to think and act out of selfishness, greed, pride, and personal ambition. It's to have a selfish desire for the things that you do not have and a sinful pride in what you do have. Rather than living to please God who examines our hearts, the worldly person tries to impress people who looks on things outwardly this is something that we absolutely must guard against and not let this mindset slip into the church these three things that john tells us to avoid the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life all relate to each other the first two refer to desires for what we do not have and the third, the pride of life, refers to pride in what we do have. The world is driven by these two things, passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. Passion for pleasure and pride in possessions. And these three things are all consumed with the here and now. What you can do to bring satisfaction in this life. And John says, look, all of these things are focused on, on the life that is here and now. And this is all temporary because it's passing away and ultimately leads to death. And it's going to go away. But then he concludes by saying, He who does the will of God lives forever. 
John isn't saying that you can earn your salvation. He isn't saying that Christians are never going to physically die. But he is saying that those who invest in the kingdom of God by following him and giving their life to him can live with an eternal perspective. And there are eternal investments you can make with your life here and now that will last forever. Jesus says, do not store up for yourself treasures here on earth because moth and rust destroy them, but rather store up for yourself treasures in heaven. There's this old saying that's so true that says, life is short, it too will pass, but only what is done for Christ will last. This is so true. And the question is, what are we pursuing today? What are we living for? What are we investing in? And this text challenges us to live in light of eternity, to live in light of eternity, not just to pursue instant satisfaction and gratification, but to seek and do God's will and to make an eternal investment with our lives. Followers of Jesus live in light of eternity and know that the world is not all there is. And I want you to imagine for a second that I have with me this rope that, that goes on and on and on and lasts forever. And I'm holding the beginning of the rope. And, and this rope represents a timeline of your existence. This, this, this uh, rope is a timeline of your life. And at the very beginning of the rope, I have this little section that's a blue dot and um, a blue piece of tape that just is this very little little uh, dot on the rope, and the rest of it is white. And so this blue part represents our physical life here on earth, and the rest of the rope represents life for eternity. And for some of us, all we think about is this little blue dot on the rope, that we try to work hard and save, 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 so we can enjoy this little dot on the rope in our physical life right here. And when we try to, um, you know, really work hard and save our money so that we can go on a vacation right here, and that's going to make us happy. Or, or we, you know, go to school and study so we can get a job right here. And, and we spend so much time focusing on this that we ignore the rest of the rope, eternity, millions and millions and billions of years on forever that we're going to spend in eternity. And John says, listen, what you do now can affect eternity. The decisions you make, what you invest in, how you behave. This, this affects what you do for eternity, that you can make a difference. You can share the gospel with people. You can love others. You can invest in eternity. And yet so many of us are so consumed with things that are temporary that are going to pass away. And so the challenge for all of us is, what are we investing in? What are we investing in? We really have a, have a, a challenge today from this text to really take a long, hard look at our lives. And what are we focused on? Are we pursuing the things of the world that promise us satisfaction and promise us gratification, but ultimately leave us empty because sin always overpromises and always underdelivers? Or are we focusing on and investing in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a kingdom that never will perish, a kingdom uh, that is going to last forever into eternity? Because we do believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he, he is going to reign in glory and that we're going to live with him forever. And now we can make a difference for eternity. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians, I encourage you, you know, to Google him and to read his story and about his wife, Elizabeth. He was actually, Jim uh, was killed by these Indians. Um, 
And uh, he has this quote that says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott understood to live with an eternal perspective because worldliness at its core and loving the world is a matter of the heart. If your heart is captured by the world, you'll love the things of the world. And if your heart is captured by the love of God, you'll be drawn to Him and to the things of God. In other words, worldliness is primarily an attitude that is motivated by wrong desires and the wrongful promotion of ourself. You know, rather than being legalistic and buying into a Christianity that's a list of do's and don'ts that so many do, rather than being paranoid and afraid of everything in the world and being fearful, or rather than indulging ourselves and living life to pursue our own desires, this message is ultimately about surrender and allowing the gospel to captivate our lives. To not be caught up in the sin that so easily entangles us, but to experience the freedom from the world through the gospel of Jesus. To experience the grace of Jesus Christ and allow it to make us gracious in the way that we treat others. To experience the generosity of God that he gave his very life to be a sacrifice for our sins and allow it to make us generous in giving back to him and be generous in our relationship with others rather than being so focused on ourselves or pursuing our own gain and being prideful. Experience the love of God that we've done nothing to earn and allow his love to wash over us in a way that makes us loving in how we relate to others. You know, and looking at this message and talking about what's the takeaway, I think Paul says it beautifully to, to, the, uh, to the church um, in the book of Romans, chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act, of worship. Do not be conformed any longer into the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in doing this, you will be able to test and see what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That we offer ourselves as living sacrifices set apart for God, and, and that we are not conforming to the pattern of this world. And then lastly, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else is going to fall into place. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you, God, that uh, Jesus, you are truth. And Lord, you came to give us life and to give life to the fullest and that you said, God, you alone can satisfy. And Lord, there are many things that compete for our affections, for our devotion. There are many things that are competing for our hearts. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are surrendered to you, that we would trust your plan, we would follow your ways, and God, that we would live in light of eternity and that we would be people who live ourselves set apart for you and for your kingdom and honor and glory for the sake of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.